0: to episode 33 of the Coach Fury podcast. My name is Steve, Coach Fury Holliner. I'm the owner of Fury Industries, or your speakeasy of strength in the Gowanus area of Brooklyn, New York. I offer small group fitness classes, personal training, and online training. Now, I also teach for several organizations and, and run courses for them, including the RKC, HKC, DVRT Ultimate Sandbag Training, Original Strength, and Strength Faction. So if you're interested in learning or training from me, with me, however you want to word that, head on over to coachfury.com. You can also check out every episode of this podcast there. Any videos, any blogs that I create, they all go up there. You can see pictures of events, all that stuff. Coachfury.com, silly nickname, easily searchable. All right. Before we get into this week's guest, I want to talk about a few things that I'm fanning out on movie-wise. Maybe one's like a half fan out. So, I'm a big fan of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Not gonna lie, I, I got in, in in the late '90s, early 2000s. I found myself in between production assistant gigs, turned on WWE. Uh, it was WWF at the time, I guess. Before, right as this transition was happening, the Attitude Era, and I saw a match with The Rock, and yeah, man, I think I have a man crush on The Rock. Ever since then, uh, been very stoked on a lot of the movies he's in, especially in Fast and Furious. Not because of my name but did a little bit of a a double feature of, of rock movies unexpectedly to mixed results. So here's the really great surprise. The Jumanji movie is awesome. Go check that one out. Everyone nails it. It's super fun. If I was anywhere from like six years old to 16 years old, I'd probably watch this all the time and, and put it on the level of Goonies. Now, am I saying it's a Goonies? No, but it's not far off, man. It's really well done. Um, Super surprisingly uh, enjoyed that movie. So that's the good one. Now, I managed to sneak out and hit up the local Bay Ridge Theater in Brooklyn, the Alpine, and check out Rampage, right? The rock double feature. I mean, I saw Jumanji at home, went to the theater. Now, here's one thing before we even get into the movie. Uh, The Alpine is one of those those few standing, kind of run-down, mom-and-pop-feeling theaters. And yeah, they they don't have the sound. They don't have the comfy seats. The floors are kind of sticky. You know, it's not ideal, but it was also a little bit cheaper. But, you know, it just brought me back to being a kid and going to the movies before we had everything was like fancy recliners and all that stuff. So I'm going to say this. The next time you're going to go to a movie, maybe you don't go to like the Avengers where you're going to worry about like Best screen projection sound and all that, but like go to the mom and pop one that might be around the one like your local one that your parents or your neighbors that grew up in your town went to show them a little love and see a movie there every now and then everything's getting so big that like it really made me appreciate the, the, the charm of being in a rundown theater um, and just getting to see a movie without all the bells and whistles. So, do that. Now, let's get on a rampage, right? So, it's right up my alley. Yeah, it's got the rock and it's got three giant kaiju like creatures. I really like the trailers for this. I was like, where are they going to go with this video game into a movie? Unfortunately, the movie doesn't deliver up to the trailers. It's a little uneven, it gets a little repetitive, I guess, just like the video game did. And it didn't know where to find its, its humor. The Rock really does carry heart for the characters, especially the big white uh, albino gorilla George, who's sort of like the vic, one of the victims of this movie. But um, it, it, it's uneven. But it is enjoyable. So when it hits uh, streaming, Blu-ray, maybe you check it out there. I mean, it, was, it had some decent effects, but I don't even know if you need to go see this one in a big, in a big screen. So of the Rock double feature, Jumanji's a must-see. The Rampage is like a wait and check out, right? Um, Now, really good. I expected this to be good, but me and my friend Tony from the Films of Fury pod pod squad, we went out and we saw Blockers in a really nice theater, like the opposite end of the spectrum, the Kips Bay in the city. Um, And man, Blockers, super fun. If you're a fan of Knocked Up, 40-year-old virgin, forgetting Sarah Marshall, those sort of Judd Apatow style movies. I'm I'm imagining he was a producer on this. I can't remember offhand. Of course, I've done zero research. This is just going on my feels. Uh, Relatable storylines, but still super raw, super funny, a ton of heart and life lessons in it. It was great. And admittedly, Tony and I both have daughters. And it's like, it, it is like, It's almost in a way it's super bad from a women's perspective and a parent's perspective at the same time. Uh, Really great movie, so check that one out while it's in theaters. I would recommend trying to see that in a theater experience where you're cracking up amongst other people. Um, So that's, uh, Fury's fanning out on things. Those three films, you know, I'm gonna let the Rampage thing slide in there because I'm still, uh, uh, in wrestling terms, a mark for The Rock. Now, let's discuss this week's guest very briefly because we're gonna get into it in the episode. I don't want this to be repetitive. It is uh, somebody I've known, I didn't even realize this until we started talking for eight years. It is Dave Iron Tamer Whitley, professional strongman, um, motivational speaker, just metalhead, superhero geek. We had a great conversation, um, which is going to lead to an announcement within this episode. So anyway, everyone, please enjoy episode 33 of the Coach Fury podcast with Fury and Iron Tamer.
1: 1977. So uh, no doubt, I got that for Christmas of '77.
0: Wow. So yeah. So uh, I never had a Shogun Warrior. That was like my cool friends had Shogun Warriors. I had this like rich. Well, he wasn't yeah. rich. He was like rich in in, in you know in hindsight, <laughs> it was just like his parents made rich. But he was the one that had all the Shogun right. Warriors, and he had the Adat Walker when that came out, and I was like, he's
1: and, also and and thank you for pronouncing that correctly. The Adat. Yes, as opposed to ATAT. Yeah, these kids today—they don't know <laughs> Star Wars.
0: <laughs> well, hey, Dave, we're already uh, recording because this is too okay. To pass up as we're nerding out. Um, yeah, this friend that, that my quote-unquote wealthy friend Ryan—he was also the only one of two people that I know that saved their Star Wars boxes and their toy boxes from when they were kids. I, I I think it was purely more of an OCD thing than any sort of future awareness of collectibles. But, um, oh, sure, sure. I, I'm hoping he made money off of them at some point or has them in a museum.
1: I'm about to blow your mind.
0: Uh oh. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing,
1: isn't it? Damn, isn't see, it?
0: I, I'm the idiot. I remember, I want to say, maybe in like going into fifth grade, my parents had a garage sale. And I remember being so happy with the 300 bucks mm-hmm. I made, selling off my Smurfs, a bunch of GI Joes, and all my original Star Wars figures. I remember being so proud of the money I made because I made more than the grown-ups. And now I, I cry when I think about it. That I
1: have. Mm-hmm.
0: That's at my folks' house.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I don't have a ton yeah. of it. like, And this,
1: like... is, this is the thing that...
0: No, I was just going to say, you can see my Godzilla wall. It's pretty much there yeah. now.
1: Yeah. The the collectible... That, uh, that... No, go I was gonna say that 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 uh, that Star Wars um, no episode four no A New Hope no nothing like that it completely if if you can find a copy of it it completely squelches the idea that George Lucas had any of this shit planned out after the fact um, because it talks about if you read it it talks about the Emperor just has kind of distanced himself from everything and doesn't have anything to do with anything they never name him by name um, <laughs> it it just uh, there's there's uh, you it literally describes anakin skywalker and darth vader as two different people oh so that's it just, amazing it, it squelches the whole thing yeah so it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool
0: for for listeners that aren't seeing what dave has been holding up we've been showing each other vintage God, his vintage godzilla toys and a, and, and a vintage star wars novelization and uh one of my mm-hmm. wedding gifts was an updated version of that vintage uh godzilla toy and uh this was one of the surprising things uh until uh, so reading your book, like we have talked metal, we have talked mm-hmm. comic books to some degree, but just in reading your book, uh, what a big geek you are actually. And, and, how, <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny this, uh, we've never really fully talked about this. Oh, awesome. He's,
1: I don't talking. even know what this is or where it came from. What's well, a T-Rex obviously, but I don't know where it came from. That's
0: probably it's- some like random Jurassic park thing, right?
1: Probably. It's but probably I- like, yeah.
0: I wanted to say this. This put when I was reading your book, and this conversation already the start of this conversation puts a lot of uh, uh, my thoughts on our friendship uh, in- into play here. So mm-hmm. I feel like we've known each other and been at a lot of courses together for years mm-hmm. before I think we actually kind of bonded and became friends.
1: Sure, I would and agree with that.
0: I would say part of that was like uh, probably me being new to like the field at the time, like intimidation. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, at that point. Um, people didn't seem accessible, there wasn't a lot of information about like the leadership in the, in the RKC in those days. The mm-hmm. other thing that I realized when I was reading your book is this, you know how like you have a friend that says, you gotta meet my friend because you guys are in so much of the same shit and then you have that mm-hmm. pressure of like, it's almost like you, 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 there's so many similarities that they almost like uh, repel each other. I think that like might have right. been the thing a little bit because we both literally have Punisher tattoos on our shins Um, Mm -hmm. you're on your shin, mine on my calf, uh, listen to a lot of the same music, but I'd say like, I've known you, we met 2011, you were instructor at my first RKC two. Okay. And then Indian clubs, the last summit of strength. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember. I don't think you were there for CKFMS. Maybe you were, but just like, maybe I
1: was was at a couple of those. And then, and then you were at the dome. Yeah.
0: The first dome
1: mm -hmm.
0: turned out being my last, um, SFG event before I came right. over onto the, whichever side of the fence you want on the dark side or the light side, whatever. I don't really, <laughs> it's all teaching kettlebells, but
1: yeah. Um, yeah. I I have totally abandoned dark side and light side and, and all of that stuff. I'm totally a gray Jedi on that now.
0: Yeah. I, I completely, um, I, I agree. And, and this is one of the other things and I think I told you this when we ran into each other at perform better.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we got to hang out uh, and, and have some good amount of laughs at the dome and mm-hmm. then the next time I saw you was as I was a senior RKC and you were still with the other guys mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we met at OS pro and yes. I have to be honest, I thought you were going to bust my balls about the switch. Cause like the, I was really new into this point where like literally uh, people were like emailing me angry. People stopped calling me. I was getting unfriended. There was like all this stuff. And I was like, guys, like it's, you know, I, I don't really know where this is all coming from. Mm-hmm. and you had the and so i expected like i knew we were still gonna be friends it wasn't that at all but i expected to bust my balls a little bit about it and you had like the best response where you're just like well i just assumed he got a really good opportunity that was good for him and his family and made sense i was like yeah thank <laughs> you man um And I think, luckily, over the years, like, uh, because that was 2014-ish, 2014, I think.
1: Sounds about right. Yeah. Is
0: is the dogma of the split and all that shit, and I think, initials has been softening pretty much across the board. I do think there's still people that are like going to hold a hard line, but I think, generally speaking, as people uh, continue to progress their education, get years under it, you start to realize it's just about teaching and helping people. Yeah. But yeah. That meant a lot to me. So, uh, well, I'm glad. And then it was I'm funny glad. when I was reading your book when you start out straight up, like talking about like you know comic books and the Hulk, and not just like I think sometimes people now quote because like, it's kind of trendy to talk about comic books and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're Avengers will come out the Thursday after this airs. Um, I'm you know I'm going Saturday with the kids. Um, is you use. And comic fans will know this. You use the appropriate terms like Fantastic Four Cosmic sure. Ray, like <laughs> so that it's legit. So that was that was a cool thing that sucked me into the book and made total sense into knowing you now, um, how similar those those sort of upbringings were. So let let's let's get even nerdier. Uh as a kid, aside from the Hulk TV show, what was your favorite comic book? Oh, there it is.
1: um i love the fantastic four i i I got this is the uh it's the first six issues condensed into paperback form and it came with this which um is the first six issues of the hulk and then there was one that it's uh the first six six issues of spider-man and it came in a little like box set kind of thing and it's it's completely raggedy and destroyed now but but i love them and so like that kind of stuff um comic wise and I, i talk about this when i do uh do my strongman shows, motivational speaking stuff. I talk about when I was a kid and identifying with the Hulk. It's very much like, like what the what's written in the book for this particular segment of of, uh, of if it's the, that particular speech that I'm giving. And I talk about how I wanted to be the Hulk, and then Luke Rigno came on TV, and um, I knew all that terminology from reading those books. I knew about cosmic rays and you know the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom and all that sort of stuff. So I talk about I um, didn't know what to do because the Hulk and, and the thing and, and all of those guys were, were all just like cartoon fantasy things. But then when I saw Ferrigno on TV in my little seven or eight year old mind, I knew that wasn't a costume. I knew it was a man with makeup on and yeah, he had the whole, the whole face thing and the nose and all that, but that was really his body. And it was at that moment that it became possible in my mind for someone not to be just a regular person, but to be big and strong like the Hulk. And so I said about, figuring out how to do that with the only information that I had. And um, I, I, I was t- literally talking about this two days ago at a high school show that I was doing. Um, back then, we would get this, it seemed like it was this big, this massive Sunday paper. I mean, it was probably, you know, much smaller because yeah. I was a little kid. But um, I would always uh, get the comic section out of it, spread the comics out and go through and read everything, you know, Peanuts and Garfield and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then one Sunday the paper came and I started spreading stuff out, but it was the classifieds instead of the comics. And my mom says, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for gamma rays <laughs> because I want, that was the only way that I knew that, that this kind of thing could happen. Of course, I didn't find any gamma rays. I didn't find any cosmic rays. I, scoured the woods for like meteors that had fallen so that I could absorb that radiation. Nothing like that. No radioactive spiders, nothing. But I talk about that and how that was because of the level of awareness that as a child that I had, I thought that's how you got big and strong. And then it was not until I saw on PBS on a Saturday afternoon, I saw pumping iron and there was Ferrigno and Schwarzenegger, Franco Colombo, and all of the guys from the, that are in that movie that I realized that to get big and strong and, to be able to lift things you had to lift things and that was probably in the summer or the fall and i got my first set of weights for christmas that year and that was the old uh plastic and concrete um rotating plastic sleeve
0: yeah and And that really sturdy bench
1: with like (laughs) the uprights were like this wide (laughs) if you bumped into the bar it would it would fall. Yeah. It's half yeah inch, I had half all of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And <laughs> the little mm-hmm. pins holding it up. Yeah. Yep. For, for me, comic books were always the escape. I was I was an only child. And as long as I can remember, I mean, I know when it closed, but uh, we had a comic book shop, a local place called Heroes World. And it was like within the sh- same strip mall area as Toys R Us, which back in the day had the big wood rainbow colored slats. Dude, and dude,
1: I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Kanye. I'm gonna let you finish. But did you say Hero's World? Yeah. I clipped out of the back of the comics back then the little order form that you would mail away to get the catalog from Hero's World, and that got sent to my house like every six months for oh, three or four years. I don't have any of those left anymore. They all didn't make it through the ravages of time, but um, I hadn't thought about Hero's World until you said that, probably for 35 years so that, that's awesome so that so was, carry that on was,
0: that was my local shop and you know so I can remember being a little kid my uh my my, my kid doctor um mm. pediatrician was in, in Comac Long Island so it was like kind of a drive and I was oddly enough as a guy t- covered in tattoos I was deathly afraid of needles so the way my mom would always be like all right we're gonna be all right we'll go to Heroes World after and I'd get those Mego dolls right you know the ones yeah. with little snap button clothing and I, I wish I still had those mm-hmm. and then you know, Heroes World moved around as the business shifted a little bit. And one of the last jobs I had while I was finishing my thesis film. Nice, Mego <laughs> Batman. I saw him lurking in the background. I didn't realize it was a Mego, though. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember having Iron Man. And uh,
1: of- can you see him? That's all that's left of him. He's only got one glove. And then this guy. <laughs> that's Awesome. So I'm sorry I, I keep interrupting you. I, I I literally never talk about this stuff to anyone because it's just kind of sitting down here in my, no, in my uh, basement. um yeah, So anyway, you got we we never
0: I I've never had a guest that's actually had you're you're <laughs> out nerding my uh, the quality of my toy collection. it's great. <laughs> but uh, when I was finishing my film my my, my thesis film at and from NYU. It took me a while to finish up, and I was actually got to work my one of my last jobs before I started taking career seriously was at Heroes World Comics. So. I was like, you know, in my early 20s, um, saving money to buy my first engagement ring to my first wife, um, which, you know, I'd buy it at the same flea market that I used to buy my Metallica records at. And... Uh, As you do. <laughs> playing Magic the Gathering and, you know, having the hookups at Toys R Us to get the rare Star Wars figures. This is when they started the relaunch of Powers of the Force. and But that, that idea of that escape, like... Um, 'Cause you mentioned if you I don't you know, let me know if you mind me bring this up, but you mentioned no, you being overweight and, and having mm-hmm. a stutter. And mm-hmm. for me, uh, I, I was definitely chubby. I was the I would have husky jeans, I would wear my t
1: shirt,
0: you know. Yes. Uh rustlers. Yep, t shirt at the beach. <laughs> um, you know, endearing that torture of when your parents make you change clothes in the middle of like the clothing rack, not in the you ever have to do that? <laughs> like, yeah. Ugh, I never did that to my kids. Oh, actually, maybe in hindsight, I probably did. Um, but, uh, that was part of my escape was comic books. Cause it's funny. Now everybody takes for granted what we have in terms of movies and quality TV. We had super friends. We had, you know, Wonder uh, Twins, Spider- <laughs> Wonder Twin, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. We had those mm-hmm. really old reruns of those Hulk and Thor and fantastic four cartoons. Remember those like really old, you know, Spider-Man era friendly neighborhood ones. And now it's like just such a part of, um,
1: the yeah, the Spider Man stuff. I've got, I've, I've, I've got that entire series on DVD. My wife got it for me for Christmas a few years ago. And if you, if you just sit back, and I think it may be on YouTube, I may have found this going down the rad the whole night. I think there's a, a channel that just has all of the musical score from that show. And <laughs> the music on there is incredible, it's absolutely incredible.
0: The problem with those is like, even when the storylines were good, the animation was fucking horrible. It was so bad. <laughs> it was like it was the so bad. same three shots of Spider-Man swinging through the city, all that reuse stuff. And this, (laughs) yeah. So, so you started lifting weights to be like the Hulk. And Mm -hmm. again, this was another interesting thing in the book because I never thought of it this way. Like I've always, you know, I I know you do cool feats of strength. um, And, and, but I never thought of like, yeah, bending bars as a superpower. I never put that connection together. When did you become exposed to like the mighty Adam and slim, the hammer man and Dennis Rogers, you know, the, the legends of strong man, but I, I wouldn't even have known what that was or where to look for it at the time. Cause we're about the same age. So how did you get introduced to that side of everything?
1: Um, well, I didn't know where to look for it. It, uh, I, I like to think that it found me. Um, I lifted weights fairly, conventionally you know read arnold's books and all the joe weeder stuff and subscribed to the bodybuilding magazines back in the the 80s because when i was you know preteen and early teens because that was all that there was um or all that, that was available to me at the time anyway i didn't know anything about olympic lifting or powerlifting or any of those things um and then um Did whatever I could do in the weight room playing football in high school. Actually, I played football in high school to have access to the weight room. I didn't really care that much about football. Um, And then sort of had an on-again, off-again relationship with lifting more in a bodybuilding kind of vein than anything through my 20s when I was a a working professional musician. And then somewhere along about 30 years old or so, um, I started which was around the time that the internet started to be something that wasn't um, wasn't difficult to access. You know, uh, you remember in the mid '90s when you first got the internet and you had dial-up and all that. You, I was learning remember? more about that. Sorry, i don't Go mean ahead. to cut
0: you off. But do you remember when you used to have to watch a still frame load?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, and then you would.
0: And, and, then, came and then if it auto. was something
1: I was really interested. Yeah, yeah, and I would, I would. Like if it was uh, an article that I was reading about listening and it had a photo and you had to wait on it to load, I would print that out and put it in a notebook because you never knew how long it was going to take to get back to that page. You know, <laughs> it's um, so crazy how far so, we've uh, come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But around about that time, I started finding out about um, old stuff like John McCallum and Reg Park and Stuart McRoberts and all that sort of stuff, um, which led me down the rabbit hole. And I remember vividly seeing that iconic photo of Arthur Saxon with the barbell overhead and he's bent over and he's got the kettlebell still on the ground, but he's about to pick it up and do his his two hands anyhow. And I remember seeing, you know, those kinds of photos. And then somewhere around in that period of time, through um muscle media magazine, Body for Life and Bill Phillips and all that, um, I um wound up getting it it was it was around that time, and from multiple different places. It was from Muscle Media, and then also from Clarence Bass's website. And I want to say there was some other website that I can't remember right now, who all had some information that Pavel had written. Hmm. And I wound up buying um, "Relax into Stretch" from Clarence Bass's website. And if people don't know who Clarence Bass is. He won the over forty Mister America um in the late 70s or early 80s. So he's been around a long time. He wrote a bunch of stuff called Ripped. Um uh, it was about how, like a series of books, Ripped 1, Ripped 2, Ripped 3, that kind of stuff. Um really focusing on getting as lean as possible was kind of his his area of expertise. But I was on his website and he I don't know if, if there was like a guest article or an affiliate link or something. But anyway, I wound up with uh, with relax into stretch. And then, right around that same time, the uh, Muscle Media magazine that I had had a big full page ad for the Russian Kettlebell Challenge book. And so I found that mildly interesting that here was this piece of equipment that I'd seen Arthur Saxon and all these other nameless old time strongmen lifting. So it started to kind of congeal that way. A um, An acquaintance of mine had a 35 pound or 16 kilo um, dragondor kettlebell and a VHS of that first instructional video that they did. <laughs> the to me. Yeah, it's VHS. And I, so I watched the VHS and then decided immediately that I, you know, I, I did like, you know, a few swings and, and all that. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready for this snatch thing. So I took that 16 kilo out in my front yard and snatched it 10 times with my right hand switched without putting it down, which I thought was really clever. And 10 times with my left hand and I set it down and I'm like, that was pretty tough. And then like the, the wake of, of fatigue hit me. And so I'm laying there on the ground, just waiting for, you know, buzzards to come and eat me. um, Because, because it was unlike any other kind of training I'd ever done this, you know, explosive, fast, relatively light kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, I need to know more about this. That took me to the RKC. And I went through the RKC in 2003 and, um, in 2004, um, this was back in the days when there were no competitions in the States, no one knew anything about it and there was no YouTube yet. And so anytime that you could find someone who had a bootleg DVD of a Russian, um, kettlebell competition, um, I bought several of those things and just studied those guys' technique and stuff, you know, and back then it, the, um, the, um, RKC was very GS friendly because, um. it it, it hadn't evolved into anything yet. I think there was like 11 or 12 different lifts that were taught at my RKC, and um, it was just a lot more all over the place, Wild West kind of stuff. Um, But in 2004, I went to a kettlebell competition and met Bud Jeffries, and maybe it was 2005. Somewhere around there, I met Bud, and um, if anybody doesn't know who Bud is, find him on Instagram, and you'll see a 300-ish pound big gnarly dude lighting stuff on fire and lifting it and throwing hatchets at it he's an incredible amazing human being he's one of the smartest most genius uh strength athletes that i've ever met um and he introduced me to dennis rogers because i was at the time um at the time i was doing um audio interviews. This is before there were podcasts. I was doing audio interviews and physically mailing out CDs to people who had signed up for this, um, ongoing subscription thing. And Bud did an interview with me and he recommended that I talk to Dennis. So Dennis, I wound up meeting him. He sent me some videos of of some of the stuff that he does. And, um, the first thing that I recall seeing him do was bending a wrench. And I'm like, well, that's, silly i just don't understand what's going on there and so uh he said well i can show you how to do this stuff and so he actually got me started doing beats of strength um bud actually showed me how to bend my first piece of steel
0: that's amazing i've never met bud um i think i started in the rkc around the time his first book came out or maybe i'd been in it a year um i will be iron released by dragon door yeah but yeah mm-hmm. folks look up his social media you'll see it, it I mean, it is a real big sort of backyard, amazing throwback. to what I would imagine strongman mm-hmm. just trying stuff is his backyards like loaded with gear. He's doing partial mm-hmm. lifts and ISOs that like a lot of us don't think about anymore in terms of mm-hmm. you know what, you know, we always tend to think more in a traditional sense mm-hmm. with insane amount of not only load, but also with coordination and balance. Sure. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Sure. but. Like one of the things that he did, he got a lot of heat on social media from you know some kid who's in his basement probably. Um, he did a like a partial zercher lift with um, four, five hundred pounds, six hundred pounds, some some obnoxious amount of weight inside his rack, and he had it set up so that if he rotated the bar would run into the rack. So he he stands up with it, rotates the bar hits the rack, he does an isometric in that holding the weight and rotating, um, which is this insane amount of weight And, and that kind of strength, that kind of training, thinking outside of the, of the conventional competition lifts and, and thinking outside of what someone else told you is good technique is what makes Bud so incredibly strong, but he'll do something like that and then he'll turn around and drop down into the splits. Yeah. Just, just, he's insanely strong but he introduced me to Dennis. Dennis got me started doing actual feats of strength um, as, as something that I could use um, as a way to express that need for superhuman strength that I had when I was a little kid reading those whole comic books. And um, Dennis taught me how to present in front of an audience. Dennis taught me how to take this ability and, make it be an expression of who I am rather than just another guy doing a feat of strength and uh, taught me how to make a living doing it. So um, eternally grateful for Dennis and um, anybody who is doing the feat of strength right now on social media in this period in time owes a debt to Dennis, whether they're willing to admit it or not, or whether they even realize it or not. Because Dennis kept the, the old time strongman feats alive when there was nothing else going on. If, if you look back, Dennis learned a lot. Um, it, he was a world champion arm wrestler and decided he wanted to become a performing strongman. And he connected with Slim the Hammerman, who was a protege of the Mighty Adam. So, the long way around, that's how I got involved with really studying the Mighty Adam, is because to use the martial arts terminology of a legitimate lineage. That is my lineage. It's a strong man. Dennis slammed the Mighty Adam.: yeah, And that's, um,
0: that, it's amazing because I, so I think actually, through you, I think you recommended the Mighty Adam book to Kathy Dooley, our friend Kathy, mm-hmm. and Kathy sure. recommended it to me, so I hunted it out. I think I got like you know, again, it's been out of print forever, um, but I got mm-hmm. a, a not crazy expensive copy from The Strand, mm-hmm. and it is an amazing book, and I didn't realize, you know, like they talk about when he started training slim and Mm -hmm. the the, the Mm -hmm. power of, I guess, and this, you talk about this in your book, the power of the mind of of just belief, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Certainly you have to train the physical attribute, but the power of belief in training the mind to, to not just visualize, but to practice is something that I've really Mm -hmm. picked up from both you and Pavel. Um, but I've seen it more into practice after reading that book. And also it's, it's Tim Anderson in a way coming from John Brookfield is very much like, if you believe it, sure. you can do it kind of frame of mm-hmm. mind. Where do you think I sometimes feel like you mentioned, you know, with, with Bud's story about where we get caught up in being specific to certain specific techniques, not thinking outside of the box. Do you, do you think by being so mindful of cert? Curriculum. I don't even want to say dogma because I don't think that's it. But like you know, say the RKC or Strong First being six lifts basically at the cert. Then mm-hmm. people forget to think outside the box that there's other things you can do. And do you think that's like a, a, oh, a, a becomes a limiter on belief because we're not. It, it's already putting like a, a, a break on the on potential because we're getting caught mm-hmm. up not just in rules of technique but rules of specific exercises.
1: Well, do you want to get stronger? Do you want to pass the test? Exactly. And nothing wrong with either one of them. And, and I, I'm going to go ahead and say both if you're interested in passing a test. I currently am not interested in, in, in achieving what anyone else thinks a standard of strength is. I've, I've gotten to the point now that the standard of strength that I have in my mind is for me. Mm-hmm. And the standard of strength that you have may line up with that or it may be completely off base with it. And either way, it's cool. I don't care. Um, just express who you really are with your strength. And I think that, well, that was one of the, um, that was one of the points of contention that, that ultimately got me out of all that is that I would go to an event and I would ask like a level two event, even, and I would ask these people who were professional instructors. Um, I would ask this question in front of the group, raise your hand if you agree with this statement. Proper form slash technique in our exercises is vitally important regardless of the exercise we're talking about. And, of course, everyone raises their hand, right? So I follow that up with a question. Do you have – or raise your hand if you have a consistent, repeatable, working definition of what good technique is regardless of the exercise. And it was just crickets. And if anyone would raise their hand or or talk or whatever, they would say stuff like good form or safe, or sitting on the couch is safe, you know, so that's not good. You know, that's not going to make you stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you got to make sure that you do a full range of motion. No, you don't. What does full range of motion even mean? You know, because if if you're only going to train full range of motion, you would never deadlift. You would only snatch a barbell, right? Yeah, you would never do a swing because that's not the full range of motion that the body has in that pattern. You would only ever snatch and you would bend the knees, you know, until your your ass touched your ankles. Every single rep. So full range of motion. Um, that's that's a slice of it, but it's not it's not the overlying philosophy. It's not the the, the it's not the foundation that the whole thing's built on. And so watching these people. Get the wheels turning in their mind. And even after I would give them my answer, I, uh, which I do have an answer because that's the kind of stuff that I, that I think about. And I'll share that with everybody here in just a minute. But, but watching the, the wheels turn and then seeing some people still not get it because they were more concerned about passing the test, that was a little bit disheartening for me. But the people that did get it, it was really awesome because I would, um, I would then share my definition. Um, but I would usually wait. I wouldn't do it immediately like I'm about to do. I would usually wait either a few hours or even a couple of days if I could. Um, I asked a lot of the the people who were in the alleged leadership roles as educators in both organizations, the same question and got the same response from them. And I'm like, what are you really thinking about here? Because it winds up being that you view the subject matter through your own lens and we all do it. Yeah. My interest is, is what are the similarities between everyone's lenses? Because that tends to be trending toward the truth. So I asked uh, literally the only person that ever had an instant response was Kirk Kowarski. I had the... the um, Captain Kirk? Pleasure, Captain Kirk. I had the pleasure of, of meeting and training with him and um, Marty Gallagher, who for my money is... The smartest strength training guy that I've ever met.
0: I, I'd agree. By um, the way, I, I'm going to cut you off for a moment. So, when I posted the picture that you were coming on this show, like I'm friends with Marty and mm-hmm. Stacy. Marty, uh, I went to a workshop at Scurrito's place with mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. and I wrote an article for Dragondor about it. And Marty actually trained mm-hmm. me online for a bit. So, we'd run into each other, you know. And yeah. But Stacy says that he, he saw the picture of you coming on the podcast and was very excited to listen to us talk. So, uh, let's take a moment and say, hey, Marty. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey coach, good to, good to be on this end of of talking about you and sharing lessons that I learned from you. Um, that I got nothing but love and respect for Marty Gallagher. He, uh, I Likewise. met him at, I met him at an event. Uh, which one was it? It was, it was whatever, um, preceded easy strength. It was when, when Dan and Pavel had written that book and, Bud was there. Marty was there, did a little segment on it. And I met Marty at that event, started talking to him. Then it wound up actually working with him online. Um, post knee surgery, I had some bone spurs scraped out of my knee and Marty helped me tremendously in getting my, my strength back. Um, after that surgery, but I asked Kirk, I I asked Marty the question and, and Marty kind of pondered it around, but I, I had asked Kirk the same question and, um, their answers were similar. I don't remember specifically what Marty said, but it was very similar. And then when I told him what Kirk said, he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, Kirk just immediately said that it um, was biomechanical. A good technique, regardless of the exercise, those are the parameters, is biomechanically correct for the individual and aesthetically pleasing to the observer. And I'm like, that's that's money. That's really, really good. Um because it, it doesn't matter if you're talking about squat, bench, kettlebell snatch, push up. It doesn't matter. Those parameters will apply. That is my really own true. personal, yeah, my, my own personal working definition has evolved a little bit past then because again, viewing things through our own lenses, that's Kirk looking at it from the point of view of a multiple time world champion power lifter and one of the greatest lifters to ever step on the platform. For Kirk, it had to have a certain visual element. It had to look good for the judges, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, there had to be no question whether or not it was a good lift. So if you, for the federation that he lifted in and the, the style of lifting that was going on there, if a, someone were to pull the deadlift like some of the guys at the Arnold Strongman or the World Strongest Man now where they can kind of hitch it and, and, and all that kind of stuff, those two worlds don't match up, Right. The, yeah. the, some of the lifts that these guys are pulling in Strongman would not would not make the cut at a powerlifting meet because they're – the, for Kirk's Federation, I mean, I don't really know powerlifting, and I'm probably – especially if Marty's lifting, I should probably not say much else about powerlifting <laughs> because I'm pretty well going to start showing my ignorance soon. So I had a, a client of mine actually teach me what I needed to know from my working definition in doing what I do because I'm not a power lifter. I'm not that concerned about whether I pass a standard for a judge or for um, a test to achieve a certification or anything like that. Um, Technique is paramount. I absolutely agree with that. Um, But it's also kind of an elusive thing, and it depends on what – what arena you're in as to whether the technique's good or not, you know, like, and and the same thing's true of like martial art. You know, if I want to go see someone do forms competition and everything's crisp and, you know, you get these, these people that can stand on one foot and put the other leg over their head and it splits and do multiple kicks and spin around. And and that's amazing stuff. You can't fight with it. Yeah. You take someone who can hit you one, you, you, you take someone who can hit you one time and you will stay hit for several days. Who yeah. has the better technique? Well, it depends on, on the context, right? So I wanted to to find a way to define technique outside of any particular specific context. And Kirk was the closest one I'd heard to that. I had a client, a woman in her 50s with, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the the checklist was. She had, something had happened to one hip. She had one leg longer than the other one. She had scoliosis and she had had issues with both shoulders. One had like two surgeries and one had one surgery, something like that. Anyway, she had, she had some pretty serious stuff that had happened to her. And she had gone to various different uh, trainers and always wound up getting hurt because she wanted to put heavy weight over her head. She wanted to get strong at pressing. That was just like her thing. And she would either work with someone and wind up getting hurt or she would work with someone who was a little bit smarter than that. And they would be like, yeah, we're not going to put weight overhead. Uh-huh. um and so she comes to me and she tells me she. is actually in the context of the amazing 12 um which is you know a whole different thing we could talk about paul mcelroy all day too but um we were doing the barbell military press and she was very skittish about it because that's where she would hurt herself is in the the barbell military press and she'd kind of written it off and i said why don't you just take this bar and it was a, a a light bar, like a 20 pound bar. So why don't you just take this bar and put it in the rack and you just stand however you feel good and you press in whatever groove feels good and we'll see what happens. And so she does this, this series of reps um, with one elbow kind of flared out to the side, the other elbow sort of forward, more weight on one leg than the other one and kind of this um, waving path instead of a straight line in the bar. And so she racks it. And I said, how did it feel? She said, it felt great. I said, okay, that's where we're going to go. And so I just allowed her body to do what it needed to do and added weight over time. Had I looked at her or had I shot a video of her and put it on, on the internet and said, hey, what do you guys think about this woman's pressing technique? I would have gotten scandalized and burned at the stake for allowing this woman to do this horrible stuff because it wasn't textbook. You know, Her, her, yeah. her elbows were in different positions and, and all of this stuff that belongs in describing a theoretical client didn't apply to her because she's not walking around in that chassis, you know? So what I did is found how her body naturally moves and got her stronger doing that. And as a result of that, she started pressing more than she had ever pressed in her life. She wound up doing going from having never done a chin up before to doing sets of three and four, but within 12 weeks and feeling great. So, Evaluating all that, I thought, okay, nothing that she's doing is particularly aesthetically pleasing because aesthetically pleasing assumes a certain set of parameters, like what I was talking about earlier with the judges or the, you know, the instructor or whatever, you know. So I abandoned aesthetically pleasing and I settled on this and this is my current working definition and I reserve the right to change it. Good technique, regardless of exercise or proper form however you want to call that regardless of exercise is physiologically appropriate for the individual performing it and it moves them in the direction of their current goal
0: That's a great way to look at it that it's and that makes total sense And and and,
1: and, and I know that I'm onto something when I when I labor over something and and distill it down to a simple statement like that and people go well yeah sure that's obvious yeah, well, you didn't say it a minute ago when I asked you what your working definition was.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I would you know? have thought, so, hey, when, when I was trying to think of what my answer to that question would have been, it would have been about finding the appropriate technique, the, the appropriate mechanics for the person, right? Like that individual mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A, a test criteria. And I wouldn't right. have thought about the, you know, that it looks appealing to the eye at all. And it is, because mm-hmm. the, the thing you mentioned, not only did she get stronger. At something she wanted to get stronger with. You know, we going back to that idea of like the mindset and the belief. Like when people suddenly mm-hmm. are getting stronger at something that they want to do and kept being told they couldn't do or kept getting hurt, and you can empower mm-hmm. them in that in a safe way. Yep. That is the long term yep. game changer that they will remember whether or not they continue to train with somebody, whether or not they yep. leave the gym, move out of town. Like that is the gift, right? That's the long term gift. Whether it or not is. they get weaker again, they get put on weight, whatever. That moment that you can for a while, however long that training duration is, Mm -hmm. is so powerful. And that's what I try to instill in my folks. It's not about having like a killer class or, you know, know, a stellar one program. It's about having stellar Mm -hmm. years of training Mm -hmm. and perpetually getting past the roadblocks that you might've thought you have. And your book talks about limitations, right. as well. but but I know for me, the buy-in for kettlebells and like, you know, uh, DVRT ultimate sandbag training. And then OS for me was, you know, I came into kettlebells already with shoulder surgery and a, and a, mm-hmm. a PCL replacement. So the fact that I was able to even do a pistol squat loaded or otherwise was like I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. Even even if I didn't have knee surgery, I never thought that would be something I'd physically be able to do. And to press a beast one mm-hmm. day, or and you know, it, and do get a human get up. Not that I do those anymore. Um, on right. the arms, on the literally the limbs that I've had surgeries that prior right. physical therapists were like, you can't do that. That's mm-hmm. the buy-in because I've seen these things work, and I know how that feels, and that's what I try to gauge people to. On the flip side of that, I'm also like, you know, not everybody needs to get like. Uh, chase unrealistic strength goals, right? Like, not that I want to set a limitation on, but some people want to have that that magic moment really quickly. And all of these take time. You know, the only time someone has, like, a really quick hit is when they have not been living up to their potential forever. You know, they come into the gym to train with you for one day. You show them how to do something right and how to push it, and suddenly they had no idea they were that strong. That's one of the most yeah. amazing things because they're going from zero to 60 without even realizing it. And then, you know, you got well, to sort of set and, those expectations.
1: Yeah, and, and, and to go back to, to Marty, um, an idea that probably every, conver- every talk I've ever heard him give, he uh, um, mentions this in some capacity, But if you take someone who's a ranked beginner or someone who's been a, a, on a layoff for months or years, anything you do is going to work. For two or three months, you know, um, you take somebody who's never lifted, you can, you can double their strength in three months because they didn't have any strength to begin with, you know, so, so absolutely. But that, that whole idea, um, of, of being biologically or physiologically appropriate for the individual is that's what makes it safe and effective, but moving them in the direction of their goal, it, it doesn't guarantee that they'll ever get to whatever their goal is but very often i find that the people that you're talking about who want that quick fix and you know i i, I want to deadlift 800 pounds by next friday what are you pulling out 185 you know it, they don't really want whatever it is they say they want they want the feeling that they believe accomplishing that goal will give them yes yeah and so i will i will operate on that by by going to the end okay what do you think that how is your life going to be different? How are you going to feel once you accomplish this? Well, let's see if we can get you to feel that way and then work work backwards from there. What what can you do right now that's going to make you feel in the direction of, you know, deadlift 500 pounds if that's your goal and you're, you're way off from it? Um, the other thing that, that I have to mention when we're talking about this is something that I um, – got from adam glass and frankie ferris is the idea that whatever is physiologically appropriate for the individual can and usually does change day to day or even hour to hour you know if if, let's say that uh, let's say that you're working on pressing and we go in the gym today and and we do a whole lot of barbell pressing right and whatever that means for you a lot of volume a lot of weight whatever um, tomorrow is not a good day for you to press, most likely, right? Yeah, agreed. And, and and that sounds obvious, but how often do we work against that? Because we say, okay, on Monday, I'm going to do bench press, and on Wednesday, I'm going to squat, and on Thursday, I'm going to do my high-rep kettlebell swings or whatever, and we don't honor what the body is telling us that it needs.
0: Yeah, it's it's – the, the thing for me that – so uh, we haven't actually talked about this, but the, the listeners will know. So I, I've been dealing with thyroid issues for the last year. And when they, okay. when, they, when they first sparked up, I was experiencing tremors. Like I was literally shaking. Um, I, And mm-hmm. creating hard style tension was probably the absolute worst thing for me because anytime I had so many sure. you know, feet forward, I just tremored more. And I had like a massive strength mm-hmm. dump. And fortunately, you know, with a great endocrinologist – most of the time, most most of those elements are gone. But there's certain things that I still uh, I will still tremor at a certain point of intensity, and I'm mm-hmm. even just dealing with that on that day to day. Where some days, like you know, I can I can look at you know the 44k and I can press that thing basically cold, and it feels great. Mm-hmm. And then other days, it, it, again, now I'm dealing with like it's it's hormonally stuff. You know, it's like I'm mm-hmm. going through my mm-hmm. my my guy version of the change in a weird way, and suddenly, like you know. Hey. Thirty six feels like super heavy, and
1: you're going through menopause. I'm going through
0: menopause <laughs> in some weird way, and it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting roller coaster because I was like on the high end of thyroid, and then I got the medicine brought me to a good baseline, and then it brought me low, and now mm-hmm. I'm trying to get that middle line again, and I think we forget right. too, like within programs and and. You know, uh, specifics, whether it's barbell or kettlebell or whatever that like you have to have like Mm -hmm. programs or guides, but they're not maps. Right. So if you're plotting a thing Mm -hmm. on, I don't know if you use the Waze app, right. You plot a thing on Waze, you're trying to go to the direction, you know, to this spot, but you have to be prepared to go Mm -hmm. backwards or sideways to get to the end location. And cause you don't want to get sure. stuck in traffic, but traffic is a real thing. It's going to happen. The problem is this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the times people make these lofty strength goals, short-term strength goals. Um, and I'm going to take mm-hmm. this outside of a strength test criteria for a cert. Cause those are sometimes deadline based, just based on availability. But someone says like, I want to do X deadlift or this press. I think sometimes mm-hmm. they put them on cells for accountability. It's like, well, it's really hard. I don't know if it's possible. So I'm going to have to train. They almost set themselves up to fail. Sure. Because it's like that, that threat of this really extreme goal is going to create some extra accountability, right? Like, I'm going to have to train if mm-hmm. i want to do, you know, a, a 36K pull up. I'm going to have to. Right. And mm-hmm. the other side of that is like allowing, you know, and as coaches, and I think that's the great thing, the longer I'm in this field is more and more of us, I think are in line with that, like being able to be flexible and that the type of hinge or the type of squat or the type of press as long as it's for the mm-hmm. right per, for meeting the person where they need to be at that moment and that day, mm-hmm. that's more important than the exact, like it's a barbell front squat or it's a barbell back squat absolutely, um, or a gobble absolutely. squat, whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. I think that's how we truly help people. Cause we keep them going right. Versus like, you know, somebody doesn't hit mm-hmm. that 36 K say they, they want to do a 36 K get up. They don't hit it. Uh, and then they're fucking bummed. Right? Like I did it. I didn't get it. I'm failed. Yep. I didn't even get close. But you said yeah. that feeling. I, I like how you said setting that <laughs> feeling, though, where maybe they just hit a 20-game setup uh-huh. for the first time and, and, and they're able to celebrate that as if it's the 36 sure. and then keep going. Because mm-hmm. I will mm-hmm. say the lost art in kettlebell land, and fortunately we, ha- we have this to a big degree in, in, in ultimate sandbag land, is that what the hell effect – you know, like the, all mm-hmm. these half sizes, we've, we've been able to sort of micro-load to some degree that we couldn't do. I mean, certainly you've been in this way mm-hmm. longer than I have. But, um, you know, back when it was like 24 to 28K, like that's a pretty big jump if you're going to do a get-up or a press.
1: You know, even a swing. Oh, I remember back when it was when it was, it was 24, 32, 40, and 48. <laughs> I think 28s that, that and was, that, 12s might have been that, just that, that the was, wow that when that, I started. Yeah, 12, 12s and um, – there weren't even 48s when I started. It was – 40 was the, the heaviest thing you get. 12 was a brand new thing. Um, but it was, it was 16, 24, 32, and 40 and 12 kind of came around at about the same time and, um, and back I, then. But, you know, you can
0: – I miss that lost art. I, I miss the bigger jumps because people don't build volume in the same way you know, where, mm-hmm. where where you had to get comfortable. For listeners, the what-the-hell effect is this. When there weren't a lot of sizes of kettlebells, you had to get really good, say, with a 16K. You had to be able to mm-hmm. you know, get a lot of reps, a lot of practice, and suddenly you'd go to, like, the next size up, which could be a 9-pound a to 18-pound jump, and you'd be surprised right. at how well that felt, and you would just mm-hmm. instantly go up the ladder. But now that we have mm-hmm. the half sizes, uh, meaning, like, say, uh, uh, 16, 18, 20, 22, people are chasing that next bell too often. I know it's been beneficial for like beast taming and, and um, more so for iron maidens. Cause they don't have as many half sizes going up to the beast. But it, I think in the long-term training aspect, we're trying to rush those bells. So in, in regards to somebody with a higher uh, you know, a lofty goal, say a get up, yeah. you know, they, they, they nail that 16. They do okay with the 18 the twenties like hanging on by stability alone, you know, yeah, and maybe with a spotter, they get the twenty two whereas really, what they should have been is living in that sixteen for like three months, but they 've been doing up those yep. bell sizes every single other session, so every three days they're trying to go up to
1: get that goal and, sure. uh, and and that was that's 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 one of the things like you know I mentioned adam and and Frankie earlier, that was one of the things that uh really opened my eyes there um, back probably nine or 10 years ago was when um, Adam first started playing around with this biofeedback idea and, and allowing your body to dictate what you need to do on any given day. And the idea being, I was as guilty as anybody being locked into the mindset of, well, in order to hit a PR, that means there has to be more weight on the bar. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. It's not true at all. You know, it's like what you were just talking about. Um, If, if I do, a shaky get up with 16 kilos today and in 2 weeks i i completely own that movement and i there's no observable from the outside or from my own internal scanning as i'm doing it um instability going on then i have improved in that lift and i set a pr whether it's measured in in terms of of absolute weight or not you know it's like how often do you do do you do you hear anybody talking about what their their five rep max pr is in any given lift people don't but that is absolutely a valid way to track it and if you if you spread the um the viewing field out wide enough you can find something that you did better today than you did last time in literally every session yeah I'd agree with that. That was a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around at first, but now it just makes perfect sense. And so when I have people come in, I I do a lot of, uh, with the people that I train, like with the Amazing 12 and various other things, I will do a fair amount of density-style training where we'll set a timer for a particular amount of time. See how many good, high-quality reps we can get done with a given weight. Let's say you come in and you lift 100 pounds 50 times today, and next time you come in and we put 105 pounds on it, and you get 35 reps with it, um, you can, uh, as the the client who's hiring me and trusting me, if you're just left to your own devices, you can look at that as like, well, it was only five pounds, but I went down, you know, 30% in my output. What am I doing wrong? Where my job is to come in and say, listen, we increased the weight by a little bit. And predictably, the total amount of reps that you did went down, but if we start looking at the actual total amount of weight moved in a given period of time, it could be the same or even higher. Yeah. So like, so like, um, which is, which is better to, to lift a hundred pounds 50 times or to lift a hundred and five pounds 46 times, you know, yeah,
0: it's I, I love that the volume, second one. That volume game always blows people's mind too. When they somebody goes up to a trap bar or something and they're bummed because, like you know, the day before they did, you know, uh, last session they did X amount of weight, and then they come back in and they've done more reps, mm-hmm. but it's with less weight. And then you do the math of how many pounds they've actually pulled off the floor, including their warm-up mm-hmm. reps, and it hits the ten thousand mm-hmm. pound mark, you know, or over, and they just can't right. believe that that's something that they're capable of doing.
1: Right. Absolutely. And that's that's also one of the beauties of, of the kind of kettlebell lifting that I subscribe to, which I no longer um, preach the hard stop doctrine because I have found through my own experience and the experience of my clients that all of the stuff doesn't doesn't apply all of the time. Um, for example, I have an online training client that literally yesterday she and her husband um, own a gym together. I get a text from the husband saying that she is 800 or 900 reps into her set of swings with a 16 kilo. She's been swinging for 20-something minutes, and she's over 800 reps. I don't remember exactly what it was. Wow. And she has not put this kettlebell down for this entire period of time. And I said, what's the target? And um, they had like written on the board of their gym um, – a thousand and forty swings for their clients to do over the course of the week or whatever. I don't really know what the, uh, what the context of that was. And so she decided she was going to do all of those in one set. Uh, And so he's given me moment by moment updates via text. And I said, see if she's, if she's able to go for a full 30 minutes. And she went 30 minutes and did 1114 reps without setting it down. And then they FaceTimed me and she talked to me. (laughs) The reason she stopped is because, is because she had a little skin tear happen on one hand. And I texted him and told her, told him to tell her to stop at 30 minutes because we don't want to tear any more skin off. But, um, everything else, like, like the, the weak link was her, her skin conditioning on one hand. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, uh, 1100 reps in 30 minutes. Um, we you know, can't put do that crazy. Like that's no, amazing. No, switching hands. Yeah, just switching hands every ten reps. You can't do that and generate excessive tension the way it's taught in the hard style. Yeah, you can't. Um, and um, you can you can argue back and forth all day, but while people are criticizing my approach, I've I either myself or people that I'm working with are out there actually moving the weight and getting stuff done. So, you know, do you want to sit around and talk about how anything over 10 reps is you're losing tension and you're not building strength? It's 16 kilos. It's not heavy. You don't have to worry about strength for 16 kilos. I tell you the truth. In my old-time strongman ventures, one of the biggest mental leaps that I ever made was when I stopped thinking that 48 kilos was heavy for some reason. Yeah, and it that's... Bud dude, it's Bud's like, dude, it's only 100 pounds. I'm like, you know, I never thought of it that way. That's an
0: interesting perspective. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. You know, and and then uh, one, 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 other little, one other little thought that goes along with that whole thing is for years, um, I parroted back the idea that tension equals strength. Tension equals strength. And I can absolutely tell you and, and prove to you with my own experience and the experience of my clients tension does not equal strength. It doesn't, it's an element of strength, but it does not equal strength. Uh, yeah, and if you I, talk to someone like I was, I was just listening to Marty Gallagher talk about this earlier today when he teaches like dumbbell bench press, he will put people into the bottom position and have them completely relax Yep. and get that extended range of motion and then gather up the tension to press out of that because tension doesn't mean anything without relaxation. And and to say that tension equals strength is comparable to saying that steering wheel equals car. I can't drive the to town with just a steering wheel. I need the rest of the car too. Yeah, it's it's really But if I don't have the steering wheel, if yeah. I don't have the steering wheel, I can't drive the car either. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating hearing you talk about this because one of the things I, I did, a, I'm working on a Die Mighty workshop, and and, and I did an in-service mm-hmm. at my friend's place in Monroe, New York, Results Driven. And one of the things, and it's certainly been an OS influence, and it is you know a hard style is a skill. You know, it's not necessarily like the way of life that I think some of us want to make it out to be. And I don't mean that as uh, oh, yeah. disparaging in anything, but like most people. When, when, when somebody – I don't train athletes, so gen pop person comes in. You know what What people are generally pretty good at carrying on in their life is, is excess tension that they don't want, right? So there's the, the tension that Absolutely. for fitness, and then there's the tension that we're, we're, we're trying to help them cope with life through. And mm-hmm. movement usually, you know, uh, it's one of the great things about, you know, our use of original strength. It's, it's, it's just moving without really having those confines. You know, we work on a good, better, best principle, and – Mm-hmm. People get to actually just experience moving with minimal coaching and just within sure. that doors open and then we can start layering in tension techniques and building up. But, you know, there's the the need for excessive tension versus tension to finish and, you know, to complete the task at hand. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying like, uh, you know, look, I, I, I still believe in the need for hard style as, as uh, on certain things. And but I think people get so caught up. Whether it's dogma or again just curriculum, and it doesn't need to be, you know, the RKC or another, you know, any group has their curriculum that people will take as the law. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Apes, mm-hmm. You know, the law, the lawgiver. Yep, it's it's yep. you know, we we got to really start thinking about what does the person need, and usually most people come in with their mobility issues because they're super fucking stressed, right? Like it's usually it's rare yeah. that it's injuries. Injuries are part of it, but usually it's just because they've been living a very stressful life. Fitness is new to them. We need to teach them how to like, you know have control over their relax. faculty to some degree, but also how to like, breathe relax so they can move. How many people have you tried well, to like, the, that's, do that's a get-up the and they can't do that's, the get-up because they're locked in a plank?
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the thing. One of the, one of the incredibly valuable things about original strength, is, and, and this, this supports the point that I made about tension not equaling strength, how often as an original strength instructor, which both of us are, have you had someone come in and you, you test them out at, at whatever movement or, or whatever and they're weak in a particular movement and you lay them down, have them close their eyes and maybe do a 90-90 with their hips and knees and just do some deep diaphragmatic nasal breathing for three, four, five minutes. Then they get up and attempt the same thing again and they were stronger. Yep. Well, did we, make, did we force them to create more tension? No. No, we gave them more availability to use the tension that they already know how to create because we turned all the noise down.
0: Uh, Tim's a perfect example of that. You know, when Tim trains for, you know, for for when, whether he's going through, you know, I know he recently went through an RKC with Dan John. You know, I met Tim uh, Mm -hmm. assisting at the second SFG in Boston. And Mm -hmm. he, he trains from crawling and dragging. And you talked about Bud doing like, you know, the ISO rotation of the rack when the first two times I assisted Tim at a, at an OS course, he would mm-hmm. like in breaks, just press against walls. And, you know, Danny will say sure. like in their old facility, he, he wanted to like move the wall and eventually he broke the wall. <laughs> he, he actually gave <laughs> part of it in. Um, and it, it is, people forget, like, I, I think we just, we so equate strength with a load baseline. So there has to be a load mm-hmm. tactic to get there you know, periodization in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, percentages on a barbell or whatnot. But I went through that Marty workshop where he had us at the bottom of the, you know, the, those, you know, dumbbell benches and whatnot, just completely letting go. Yeah. Letting it go lax mm-hmm. and then having to generate and pump. And, you know, what that also mm-hmm. does is it, man, it destroys a sticking point because what's the hardest part of the you yep. know bench, the bottom getting out. That's why everybody bounces off yep. their chest. Uh, yep. And, but then he also was great at knowing when to use tension, right? So I remember, you know, he would have like a lot of like kiss the deck, real slow, up-down tempo, kiss the deck, don't mm-hmm. relax, come back up on your deadlifts. And then I went through another mm-hmm. barbell cert where like, I, I, you know, I was getting, I don't want to say reprimanded, but I was told I had to completely relax and reset every rep. Even though I'm like, i I think technically speaking, like the lift was good and the weight was coming up, I had to resubmit a video because mm-hmm. i wasn't doing that aspect now like look based on criteria well, what's what's the difference if it's not bouncing bounce right. reps are different uh you know it's a it's an interesting thing well,
1: well and then in a case like that, it's what is the goal at hand is is your goal to win a powerlifting meet if that's the case then i say yes you know it the the tension out of the bottom or the 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 completely relaxing at the bottom is probably valid because you're doing singles in a competition, yes. but, but prior to that in your training, or if you're training for, you know, if you don't care about, you know, pulling a world record deadlift, if you just want to put some muscle up your entire backside, then yes, kiss the floor. Don't let the plates rattle. Keep that continuous amount of tension because that causes more um, muscular fatigue and damage, which will then trigger more growth. You know, the, the negative, especially in a deadlift, gets mistreated in so many ways um, because you can do it so many different ways, and the way that you do the, um, the negative should line up with whatever your ultimate goal is, to go back to the, the whole definition I was talking about earlier. Is it moving you in the direction of your goal? One of the things that I'm working on right now is deadlifting the Thomas Inch replica dumbbell. Um, I don't do when I'm doing it very heavy, I don't do negatives with it. I will, I will pick it up, um, and I'm not able to do it with one hand yet, but I'll pick it up with two hands in whatever manner that I'm, that I'm working on that particular day. Sometimes it's in a full-assisted lift with a hole at the top. Sometimes it's a, um, the empty hand helping just enough to break it off the floor. But typically when I'm going heavy in that particular practice, once I, once I get to the top, I actually let go of it and drop it. I'm not doing any negative. If I'm using my, um, I have a hundred pound baby inch, I will do sets of multiple reps where I don't even kiss the floor with it. I come to within a few millimeters of the floor and come back up with it. So my, my set duration is you know 20 or 30 seconds versus the five or six seconds that the heavyweight would be. And yeah. that's all by design. That's all on purpose.
0: So many ways to approach stuff. And if we all just opened our minds mm-hmm. to allow for them, think of how much, mm-hmm. how much less stress and less douchey we could be as an industry sometimes. Absolutely. Um, even on the higher end of it. Before I let you go, um, mm-hmm. there's this thing going around Facebook right now where people are putting down, myself included, uh, 10 favorite albums of all time that have had an impact on you. What would be three mm-hmm. of your all-time great albums that have had an ongoing impact on you?
1: Um, Pantera, Vulgar Display of Power, Allison Chain's Dirt, A C D C Back in Black, Ted Nugent, Double Live Gonzo, the first Van Halen album, Joe Satriani Surfing with the Alien, um, Johnny Winter and Live, um, the Muddy Waters box set. What else have I got here? I I'm, love I, that I'm, that was so
0: prepared. I, like you you have it there. Well it's, are it's, these all right in front of you right yeah, now? I mean, it's, That's
1: amazing. No, no I'm I'm um, the, 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 top three or four, um, I will literally, it's not going to change. The Alice in Chains, uh, Dirt, Pantera, Vol. Display of Power, Back in Black, Double Live, Gonzo. Those are forever going to be important to me. Um, and the first Van Halen album, those will, will always be that, um, be there for me. The, um, because, you know, I was, a uh, in my youth, in my previous life, I was a professional musician. And those, uh, those albums, helped me to um, figure out what my own style was, which is awesome. vitally important.
0: You know, Pantera is one of those bands, for, for whatever reason in the age gap, while I was in college, I, I, mm-hmm. I got into them late. And, and one of the, if there's a handful of bands, I wish I could go back and see live. It definitely would have been Pantera being like the top five.
1: I wish you could see them too. I really do. Cause I was there, I think I saw them seven times. Man. Um, the first time, the first time I saw them was about a month before vulgar display of power was released. They were a very good Southern regional band at that time who had gone outside of the, of, you know, the South and Texas and, and, and all of that a few times. Um, that was in January that I saw them January of uh 92 vulgar display of power came out in February of 92. I think that was the right year. Um, and then they came back to Nashville again in either November or December of that same year. And they were metal gods at that point. Um, the, the, first time I saw them, there were maybe 60 or 70 people in the club. They did Crazy. what they did. All of the songs that, that they played that night from vulgar display of power were new songs. No one had heard them before. That was the first time I heard this love. That was the first time I heard, um, um, walk and all of those oh. all of those songs i heard them for the first time live that night and they finished their set they did an encore they went back to the dressing room probably two-thirds of the people left there were probably 20 or 25 people that, that were just kind of standing around drinking beer at the bar and all the boys in the band come out and hung out at the bar until daylight it was amazing <laughs> um i i got to talk to Phil for a little while there, actually had his home address at, 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 that he wrote it down. And I sent him a demo tape and never heard back from him uh, because, well, truthfully, the demo sucked. But um, <laughs> a group of probably a dozen of us all did a shot of crown or a, a black tooth rim with a dime bag. Amazing. So that's, that's, that's one of my dime bag stores. The other one is, was incredibly important. When they came back that later that same year, they did an in-store, at tower records. And my friend had this raggedy poster that he took down and took with us to get, uh, to get the guys to sign it and dime signed it. And, you know, we were standing there going, you're a dime bag. And he's like, yeah, I know. Uh, we said something, you know, fanboy to him or whatever. And he's like, man, I really appreciate you saying that. And he looks me dead in the eye. And he says, but I'm just a fan. Like you guys, I happen to be the one up there doing it. <laughs> That's and, amazing. And so- It it was amazing. And literally, uh, we've been in events together. You've, you know, we've, we've done our thing together, you and me. Um, every time I walk out in front of a crowd of people to, to talk or to deliver any sort of information or experience or, you know, Ben Steele or whatever, I have that idea in my mind that these people are here to have an experience. And I have the privilege of being the one who's delivering it to them right now. Whether that's you know teaching a workshop or doing a show or a talk or whatever, and it, it was one of those things that moment affected literally every moment of my life since then. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about I'll talk about those guys all day.
0: That's awesome. What's the what's the other than Pantera? What would you say is uh, one of the best live metal shows or shows you've been to?
1: Live metal shows. Um, Sing Guar a couple times. That's always fun.
0: I finally saw I them it, uh, on our honeymoon. We went to Riot Fest and finally it, I feel there's certain bands that like I can't believe I, I haven't seen them yet. Yeah, and I finally got it, yeah, they were and, super fun and the new singer did a you know an awesome job.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know if I would call it good but it was fun, you know. Um, it was
0: the whole thing. They were actually more musically sound than I was expecting. Like I bought into it. Plus yeah. like Kim and I had been out all day watching like dozens of bands <laughs> and having yeah. you know several drinks. It was perfect uh the blood in the nice night sky
1: yeah i saw um at an outdoor arena i saw allison chains open for ozzy on the no more tours tour lane staley's leg was in a cast because he had broken it and um he was part of the time he was on crutches part of the time he was would sit um i want to say he was in a wheelchair so he could still be mobile um but he was he was doing this like spasmodic thrashing around while he was sitting down. That was completely unnerving to watch. (laughs) It was, it was right before heroin really did get the best of him. And and he started kind of losing his abilities, you know, because if if you look at some of the videos from like 95, 96 of them, he's still able to sing, but he doesn't have the power that he had when he was younger. And he's just kind of standing there holding on to the mic stand singing in a lot of that stuff, or like it, like on the unplugged stuff where he sings and his voice is kind of thin and you're not sure if he's you – yeah, know, but he's still incredibly powerful. But I saw him, I would say, when they were – I don't know if he was at his peak, but he was still near his peak at that point. He hadn't gotten completely chewed up by it. But just watching him thrash around while sitting down, it, it was just unnerving because he was really, really skinny, and he he was a tall guy anyway. He was like 6'1 or 6'2 with these lanky – Limbs and him thrashing around with that cast, and and he had those big uh sunglasses, goggle looking things on, you know, it's pretty unnerving, pretty nice, and 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 beautiful, beautiful stuff.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 funny when you appreciate a front man when they do do something that's so bizarre in tune with the music. Uh, we just saw one of Mm -hmm. my favorite bands to go see is this band, the Bronx from California, and uh. We saw them play in Brooklyn maybe four months ago, and they had this band Plague Vendor mm-hmm. open up, and the singer for Plague Vendor was you know, just had this dance style that you're like, well, it's definitely reminiscent of like, you know, Joy Division, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but the combination of it mm-hmm. was like, this guy looks insane, and he's awesome, yeah. and I know that if I was in like a high school frame of mind, seeing somebody move like that, like that's who I would have mm-hmm. wanted to be uh, on stage. And, and it's funny how, like, I, I don't know if there's enough front men that create that type of impression anymore um, mm-hmm. that really deliver. I, I,
1: yeah. Uh, you, you saying that sparks a memory for me. I also got to see the Rollins band in, oh, yeah. in their prime on the um, – um, not the End of Silence tour, but the one that came after that. Uh, uh, wait. The one with Liar on it. Yeah, that was wait, – Wait, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it, was at, it was at a club, and they had put down – um, what looked like a couple sheets of plywood with a, like, just on the stage, and that was Henry's area. He didn't really go off of that, which um, I think that was for his safety and everyone else's, and I remember they came out and they did a couple of songs, and after the first song, he barked something at the at the sound guy or the light guy or something, and they did another song, and and whatever he didn't Like hadn't gotten rectified, and so he said, "Listen, just turn the house lights up, leave them on, and go away." (laughs) Because he, like, something about the lights was bothering him, or whatever. I saw him again at the same club doing spoken word, and he walks out, you know, and he's wearing like dress pants and a T-shirt. He picks up the mic and he walks over, and he walks in front of the monitor, and it squeals, and he goes, "Hey, sound guy, it's one guy with a microphone. It's not Kiss."
0: Well, Rollins is definitely like, so if you were to come and, and train in my training room here, like there's a picture of mm-hmm. Rollins mm-hmm. live, like literally in between the, 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 mounted post of my pull-up bar. Like he's just somebody that has had, uh, mm. musically, uh, obviously the iron in the soul at uh, that details article about, lifting. right, right. Um, we're right. literally designing a, a die mighty gray workout, like basic gray workout sweatshirt that we're going to call the peppermint after mm-hmm. his coach that got him into lifting. Um, right, right. but he's also somebody like, you know, uh, a sign of growth, right? Like, one of the things that I think is fascinating sure. about, you know, knowing you as long as I've known now, you know, coming up on eight years, is like, I've seen you grow from being like, you know, mm-hmm. a big name in the kettlebell world to, and, and, and strongman to being like a full professional strongman, motivational speaker, author, like bigger things. Mm-hmm. And Rollins going from being known as this like, sort of like angry, do it yourself, direct guy to like mm-hmm. a traveling, artistic, political, politically aware, you know, somewhat brilliant mind. And he's still doing yeah, – yeah, so there, there's that aspect of, like um, – I remember I taught a bunch two years ago. I traveled a lot to teach, and I ended up in Australia, uh-huh. unfortunately, missing him by, like, a week. But I just remember, mm-hmm. like, this is my time to get in the van mm-hmm. and, and try to be like Rollins for a little bit yep. and just get yep. it done because yep. opportunities can end. And you got to seize yep. the ones that are right as often as you can.
1: Absolutely. Um, we used to – uh, in my band days – we had a um, a thing on the wall in our rehearsal space. So, had a picture of Henry Rollins that we had, you know, printed out or cut out of a magazine or whatever, and then um, printed out a, a big plus sign next to it. And then there was a, a picture of Rob Halford from Priest, and then nice. an equal sign, and a, and a picture of Phil Anselmo from, from Pantera. <laughs> That's
0: pretty damn true. <laughs>
1: That's pretty accurate. A new priest. Album and and, and awesome, somebody, by the way. Yes. Yes. And anything they do is awesome. I also had had recently had the thought that, um, Henry Rollins is liberal Ted Nugent.
0: (laughs) That's pretty good. Actually, if only they would actually, uh, you know, you know, go out on an election against each other.
1: That would be hilarious because it's like, like with both of those guys, Ted Nugent's one of my favorite guitar players ever. And I grew up wanting to be Ted past few years. I'm like, Ted, would you mind just not saying those things anymore? You know, Yeah. and, and there's been times, with, and there's been times with Henry Rollins. I'm like, good point, good point, good point. Why did you say that? You know? So it's like, you know, 85% of the time I'm good with either one of them. And then that other 15% of the time, I just have a different opinion than them. And that doesn't, that, that's not bad. That's just how it is. The important but, uh, I part. I thought that is was funny. To live the-,
0: the critical thinking to, to separate that, right? To, to, to be able to right. appreciate the good, understand what you don't jive with, and still be able to get along. I think we could all, in life, <laughs> learn from that skill.
1: Sure, sure. Because at, at the end of the day, um, even even people who seem as diametrically opposed as that, or someone who's completely diametrically opposed from me or you. Really, we have more in common with each other. They have more in common with each other than they do differences. Because if you were to go down a list of of questions for any of us and be like, do you believe that people should have the freedom to live their life the way they want to? Do you believe that people should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as it's not hurting anyone else? Do you believe that, you know, just these kinds of things? They're going to say yes to all of that. I know I would. So if, if we look for differences, we'll find them. If we look for commonalities, we'll find them. And that's where I am and what I try to do with everything. If I have any ability to tell me as a coach or as a speaker or anything like that, more than anything else, it is a conscious decision to look for the commonality of patterns. Where is the pattern in this? If I'm looking at you as a client um, and I'm able to spot a pattern that you do this with that arm and you don't do it with the other arm, that gives me information which ultimately becomes knowledge and applied knowledge is power, right?
0: That is a great perspective. That's awesome, Dave. Hey, um, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, cause I'm okay. actually going to have to walk the dog and teach a class in a moment. Dave, you have a workshop coming yeah. up, spread the, spread the word on that
1: now. I have a workshop coming up in Nashville on June 9th. Um, and we didn't even talk about Wim Hof. That's amazing. Man, we, we have um, a lot. There,
0: there's a lot that I want to talk okay. about. We, we, we definitely yeah. will get another episode sooner than later.
1: The, um, the June workshop coming up is my take on um, integrating the, my understanding of how to train with kettlebells and physically expressing movement in that way along with what I've learned about the Wim Hof method in the the past close to five years of practicing it and in a little over a year and a half of being an instructor of the Wim Hof method. The two things dovetail together perfectly. Um, even though it might not look like that on the surface, um, I am going to talk about how I use the, the in particular the Wim Hof breathing. We're not going to do ice pads in, in, in this thing, but um, we're going to talk about how the various methods within the Wim Hof method uh, various techniques within the Wim Hof method of breathing can um, enhance both um, maximal strength, like one rep or three rep max kind of stuff, and also sustained strength—the kind of stuff that allows you to pick up a kettlebell and swing it for thirty minutes without putting it down. Awesome. And that's coming up on June 9th. Um, I haven't—I don't have like a website for it. My website is solely devoted now to my strongman and speaking stuff. That's irontamer.com. dot com. My social media is all some variant of the of the, the term iron tamer. Um, I put the workshop on Facebook. That's the only place that I've actually mentioned it yet. But it's I've shared it to several pages on Facebook. So if you're interested in that, um, find me on Facebook or Instagram and send me a message, and I'll send you the link to it if you can't find it. And I'll um, put love that to see you in Nashville.
0: I'll put that info on the uh, the podcast description page as well, folks, so you can find it there. Hey dave can you tell the listeners to die mighty
1: please please let me do this (laughs) all right everybody listening this is iron tamer dave whitley and i encourage you to die a long time from now but die mighty awesome brother
0: hey thank you so much for coming on dave
1: thanks for having me it's always fun talking to you brother
0: yeah man it's great to catch up and uh i look forward We'll, we'll we'll hop online after this and uh figure out a time Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for for, for listening in and uh, uh, spending some time with us, with Tamer and Fury, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, everybody. The Coach Fury podcast is created, owned, and produced by yours truly, Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit theftw.nyc.com for band album tour and merchandise information. And the artwork is created by Glenn Urieta. Visit glennurieta.com. That's G L E N N U R I E T A. Or on Instagram at glennurieta. Thanks, everyone.